last couple weeks, I would encourage you to go on to either our church Facebook page and, and watch the, the, the messages, or you can also go online at our website and you can listen to it. You can, uh, you can actually uh, sign up for podcasts, too. My, my daughter actually listens to me once a week, and she gets it on her phone in her podcast list. And uh, So you could do that as well, but uh, we've been learning some things. I mean, some good things, some challenging things, some exciting things. Uh, last week, we learned that when we think of the word wonderful, it doesn't necessarily mean our modern-day description of wonderful. It, it actually means incomprehensible, um, that we can't understand it. Um, and that's who our God is. I, I came across this memo from an ancient pastoral search committee, and I just wanted to read it for you. In our search for a suitable pastor, the following scratch sheet was developed for your perusal. Of the candidates investigated by the committee, only one was found to have the necessary qualities. The list contains the names of the candidates and comments on each, should you be interested in investigating them further for future pastoral placements. Noah, he, was 120, he has 120 years of preaching experience, but no converts. Moses, he stutters, and his former congregation says he loses his temper over trivial things. Abraham, he took off to Egypt during hard times. We heard that he got into trouble with the authorities and then tried to lie his way out. David, he is an unacceptable moral character. He might have been considered for minister of music had he not fallen. Solomon, he has a reputation for wisdom but fails to practice what he preaches. Hosea, his family life is in a shambles, divorced and remarried to a prostitute. John, he says he is a Baptist but last, lacks tact and dresses like a hippie. Would not feel comfortable around him at a church potluck supper. Peter has a bad temper and was heard to have even denied Christ publicly. Paul, we found him to lack tact. He is too harsh, his appearance is contemptible, and he preaches far too long. Timothy, he has potential, but is much too young for the position. Judas, he seemed to be very practical, cooperative, good with money, cares for the poor, and dresses well. We all agreed that he is just the man we are looking for to fill the vacancy as our senior pastor. Thank you for all you have done in assisting us with our pastoral search. Sincerely, the Pastoral Search Committee. Wow. Things aren't as they seem uh, at, at first blush, are they? Oftentimes, that's the truth. You know, we always, or we often say, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, there's more to the story. Um, and, and I hope to apply this principle, if you will, to our message today. Now, when you hear the word mighty, what sort of images come to your mind? Uh, what sort of things do you think of when you think of the word mighty? Because that's the word for, from our verse today. Well, this is the first thing that came to my mind when I thought of mighty. Cutting edge. Hollywood right there, right? I mean, you got to love 80s commercials. But, but, but that's one of the things that comes to my mind. What, what else might come to your mind when you think, now, I didn't say these were going to be spiritual. Um, this is the next thing that came to my mind when I think of Mighty, right? Mighty Mouse. Um, any, anything else out there? Um, how about this one? The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, right? Mighty, that was, this was the stuff I was being fed you know, growing up, although that is just weird to me. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get that at all, honestly. 
Um, but they were powerful, right? I mean, they could conquer evil all over the world, the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Well, biblically speaking, from a spiritual perspective, the other thing that comes to my mind when I think of, uh, another thing that comes to my mind when I think of might is King David's mighty men. Uh, King David's mighty men. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, turn to 2 Samuel 23. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, grab one of those underneath the seat. There should be one in front of you. And turn to page 321. There you will find 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I just want to read through this because, well, first off, I like to say the names of these guys out loud. They're really cool names. Um, but, but I want us to see what made these men mighty. So starting in verse 8 of chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, these are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bathshebeth, a Tekemenite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Could you imagine? I can't. 800 men in one encounter. This mighty man of David Kill them all. Next, verse 9 to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamon for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, so the army of, of Israel fled. But he, Eleazar, um, stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. You guys, you men have gotten that, right? Swinging a hammer all day long. If you haven't before, I mean, if you ever, you, you know, you get that, you get that clench and you got to pry your fingers off the hammer to let go, right? Does that ever happen with a golf club? No? No? Okay. Um, so this happened to Eleazar, and it says then the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and then the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. So they came back after he did all the work. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops did what? Fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Verse 13, during harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David this this is crazy to me. At the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, have you ever had that happen? You're, you're having this longing, and you say something out loud, not really meaning for, I'm not sure if David you know, really meant this, but this is what he said. Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, which is full of Philistines right now. So the three mighty men that we just described broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. You want to drink water? We'll risk our lives to get you a drink of water. That's how much they revered David. That's how loyal they were to him. That's how much they cared for him. And they did this thing, and then it says that he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Now, just dumping it would be one thing. It seems to me that he's pouring this out as an offering to the Lord, and he says this, Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. 
Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. And then that chapter goes on to describe another 33. And in verse 39 it says, And Uriah the Hittite, keep that name in your head, Uriah, and Uriah the Hittite, there were 37 in all. So there were 34 more after those three mighty men. Strength, right? Um, I, I try to imagine pictures of what these mighty men might look like and what their, their armor might have on. And, and I found some other things, but I was like, eh, I don't want to show those. Let's leave it to our imagination to think about what these guys look like. Where, where did these warriors get their strength, though? From pumping weights every morning, you know, in the garrison exercise yard? You know, where did these men get their great strength? Well, it had to be God, right? I mean, no, it's, I don't think it would be humanly possible with a sword to strike down 800 men in one encounter. I don't, it just doesn't seem humanly possible to me. Their strength had to come from God. David himself knew that great strength. Uh, look at Psalm 33, verses 16, 17, and 18 up here. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. That is a great reminder for us this morning because I know people in this room, I know friends of mine who are just, life is just beating them up. I mean, they can't hardly breathe. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to decide. They don't know what to do. One day they feel okay about it. The next they don't. Well, sometimes we think, if I just had a bigger army, if I, if I just had smarter people or stronger people around me or, or you know, people that really thought logically instead of the way that they're thinking, if we only had them around us, you see the battles that we fight, and, and, and this verse was directly quoted by my niece, Larissa, who three years ago was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. This is one of her verses that she has held on to through the midst of this. It doesn't, and yes, there's this thing before me, but, but ultimately, you know, greater medical technology, greater army, stronger people, smarter people, that all won't do it. It won't do it. She is able to get up every day amongst other things that's happening in her life as well and recognize that my strength doesn't come from myself or the people around me. It, comes, it only comes from the Lord. I mean, the battles that we all fight, we're not saved by the size of our army or the strength of our argument or our position um, or the position that we have or as CEO or as David put it, as king. from the Lord. Now, let's get to some details surrounding the birth of Christ, shall we? Uh, first of all, I want to remind us that Isaiah, the verse that we're going to read right now, um, seven, was written 750 years before the birth of Christ. Okay, remember that. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and this is our verse, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Bricks of Peace. Now, for a moment, I want us to think about the very first part of that that says, for us, a child is born. We have a child here in the room with us. Little Haley, and she might cry. Hallie, sorry. I know some Hallies, I know some Haley's, and darling, you're, you're just destined to have people mispronounce your name. You know what? Look at this child. Um, she can't feed herself. She can't clothe herself. Um, completely and totally up to other people. Now, how big and how grown up do you think Jesus was when he was born? When he was born, not even this grown up. Right? Talk about things that... Uh, oh, 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 uh-huh. okay. Alright. You know, all my kids are grown up, but I've done this before. Thank you. I mean, when Hallie and when Jesus came into the world, when Jesus came into the world, slimy, right? Cold in a cold place. I mean, there was lots, there was crying. I mean, I'm sorry away in the manger, but I'm pretty sure Jesus cried. Now, as we think about the song Silent Night, it was a holy night, for sure. But I really don't think silent was part of it. Um, And honestly, at that moment in time when Jesus was that size, the Power Rangers had something over him. Right? I mean, they could care for themselves. (laughs) Our Savior could not. Just let that sink in a little bit. And and this morning we're going to look at three details, okay, surrounding God's might in the Christmas story, in the Christmas events. Uh, And there are many, 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 many subtle events and details that that have happened for hundreds, thousands of years we're going to see, leading up to the birth of Christ. And that are also pointing to and leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and I don't want us to get so involved in the details that we forget about the big picture, which is the fact that Jesus came to save us. He came to save you and me. He did that. He came that way. For you and for me. For all of us in this room, whether you've believed this and put your faith and trust in him or not, he did. He came for you. I mean, let's not forget the reason that God did this and, and, and you know, how he did it. He came, he, he was the only one that could be the perfect sacrifice. He was the only one that, that, could, be, that could be sacrificed, crucified, conquered death, and rise again. There, there is no one else who could satisfy the wrath of God but him. And he did that for us. Let's not... Forget that, even as we look at details of the Christmas story. He is our Messiah. He is God. What an amazing, loving, and incomprehensible God we have. 
So let's look at some of these. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. We looked at that last week. Mighty God. That's our word. Those are our words this morning. Mighty God. And the first detail I want to look at is the fact that God's might is shown through a genealogy. Right? A genealogy. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Turn there. It's the first gospel of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. And oftentimes, at least at, at Christmas time when we read the story, we read several parts out of Matthew and several parts out of Luke. The first few verses of Matthew chapter 1 are not what we read. We, we, don't, read, we don't read those, but there is such insight and detail found in Matthew chapter 1. What on earth is Matthew trying to accomplish? What might his reason be for putting a genealogy first in his book? Well, look at verse 1 there. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Important pieces of information for, for history, for prophecy, for what God had said would happen. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of many, many, many promises that God made throughout the course of history. Uh, look at uh, Genesis 26.4. I will make your descendants, God said, as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, God said to Abraham. Who will be blessed? All nations. doesn't just say the nation of Israel. It says all nations will be blessed by what I'm going to be, do- be doing. And it's coming, it's come true in Jesus Christ. God made a promise and a covenant with Abraham 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Okay, 2,000 years before, God makes this promise. This is what I'm going to do. And this is how it's going to happen. All right. Then Matthew also mentions King David. King David lived a thousand years after, after God made his covenant with Abraham. King David, a little shepherd boy, soon to be king of Israel, but not just a king. Uh, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. He was revered by all of Israel. So Matthew, at the very beginning of the Christmas story, says... Here's a record of the bloodline of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, of the line in the family and of the line of David, the son and in, again, in the line in the family of Abraham. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Three major men in a 2,000-year genealogy. And of course, don't, I, don't forget Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, 750 to 800 years before Jesus was even born, said this is, this is who he's going to be and this is what it's going to look like. And then Matthew runs through all the connections. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so on, all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to 
the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. God is mighty and he is in control of all the details. And I believe that if we, in a, in a similar fashion, surrender ourselves to this same God with the details of our lives, we can trust him to work them out even if in the midst of our current circumstances, it, we just can't see how that could possibly happen. I mean, I, I want to point out before we move on, interesting that in this genealogy, um, and I think this is a very important detail for us to recognize, in, in this genealogy we see... Now, if you really wanted to proclaim this really great and powerful religion... You know, this is the greatest thing out there. You wouldn't put the people that Matthew puts in in the genealogy. Not that he's putting them in there, but you would list the good ones and not the bad ones of the line. But in this list, we have murderers, we have, a prost- we have prostitute wannabes. There's someone who pretended to be one. Um, there is an actual prostitute. We have Gentiles, we have Jews. I mean, Ruth is listed, right? Or is it Naomi? Ruth wasn't a Jew. She was the wife of a Jew whose mother and father went away from Israel, from Bethlehem actually, and then came back. Man, there's lots of names there. I mean, Tamar, think of Tamar. She had a great life, didn't she? She was raped by her brother. I mean, awful, awful stuff. But she's listed in the family and line of Jesus. Then we have Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth married Naomi's son. Sons died. Husband died. uh, Naomi goes back to where? Bethlehem because she heard there was food there and Ruth went with her. Naomi said, no, you don't have to. Ruth said, no, I'm loyal to you. I'm, I'm, your God is my God. Not only that, <laughs> but I know God is thinking, yes, Ruth, you need to go with Naomi because you are going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I mean, I honestly didn't really make that connection, especially to the town of Bethlehem, until just this last week in a Bible study that we're doing for our small group. So here we have Ruth, a Gentile, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And, and then somewhere in this next one, oh, yes, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been who? Uriah's wife. So now we have two adulterers also in this list. Here's here's one of the reasons why Matthew wanted to put this genealogy in here was because Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. And he said, look, here here is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This shows that Jesus was of the line of David, of the line of Abraham. 
okay? It, it fulfills those prophecies. I think one of the other reasons and one of the things that I see in this is the fact that Jesus came for all of us. I mean, they're a part of his family. We are a part of his family. I mean, Jesus said that he came to save who? All the great and powerful people? No, he came for the sick and the lost. That's us. And that's lots of people in the line of his own family. See, because he was the only perfect one, right? Wow. How amazing God is. Um, and then I referenced this last week, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. God's might is shown in every detail of this genealogy. I mean, you think, well, it's just a bunch of names. No, it's not. There's depth of truth in that list. Um, the second thing, uh, second detail I want to point out this morning is that God's might is shown in the protection of Jesus. And I, I mentioned this already in the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, when he was born, was, I mean, he was, he was a baby. Uh, from the first day that Mary started showing that she was pregnant, God had his protection on Jesus. Because what, what did the Old Testament say they should do to adulterers? They should be stoned, right? That didn't happen here. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and she was pregnant, and in the minds of everyone in town, well, it's the only way that a woman could get pregnant. And Joseph said, it wasn't me. Well, then who was it? Who's the man? Who did you betray me with? I mean, that was a serious matter, and we looked at this last week. I don't want to spend time there, but God sent an angel to tell Joseph, look, this is all on the up and up, supernatural. This is of God. And, and Joseph, um, Joseph did exactly what he was told to do. He took Mary um, as his wife. Um, and maybe, you know, you've always wondered... Uh, you know, Joseph was betrothed, and you might think, well, they were engaged, and then it's like, well, why would Joseph need to quietly divorce her if they were only engaged? I mean, we, uh, you know, people break engagements all the time. It's, it's once, you know, it's, it's, it's once you make it permanent that things get really um, difficult. But a betrothal in that period of time was essentially marriage. I mean, the only thing they hadn't done at this point to the, after the betrothal was consummate the relationship, which, which it, God's word even says that it wasn't until after Jesus was actually born that that even happened. So God protected Jesus in the womb and protected Mary and, and Joseph. And then, and then there's the travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth. That's 80 miles. Uh, and it says up. Now, think of, the guys are thinking, well, 80 miles, you know, that's not all that far, right? Try it nine months pregnant, men, on a donkey, or walking. How many miles do you think, ladies, how many miles do you think you could do in a day, nine months pregnant, on a gravelly, rocky road? Two? Uh, if it was 20, it would take four days. Um, if, they could, if they could muster 10 miles a day, that's between here and Torrington, 
which on a, again, it's not a highway, it's not a pathway. Um, it goes through, it goes through Samaria. I mean, even eight days, right? Cold. Where are they going to sleep? You know, they didn't, didn't even have Motel 6s back then. Outdoors. And then what about the delivery? Young woman, no hospital, manger, cave, stable, what, whatever it looked like. Maybe they were able to scrounge a midwife. Maybe not. We're not told any of this, but the baby not only survived the trip from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, but he survived the trip through the birth canal as well. He was under divine protection, God's might. And then there's this. Herod, in the beginning of chapter 2 of Matthew, inquires of the Magi from the east as to the location of Jesus. And now, Herod knew the prophecies. Um, and he was concerned about losing his power and control. You see, the prophet said that the government would be on his shoulders. And of course, we know that that doesn't mean actually the Roman government. But Herod didn't know that. Herod is, is probably thinking political power. Look right there, Matthew 2, 13 through 18. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Hey, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. We know what happened. Again, mighty protection, God watching over Jesus. But as I said earlier, sometimes there's more to the story, and I believe that is the case here in verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Do you think those words and those names and those places would bring up any memories of a Jew? Where do you think their minds would go when they hear the, the, the name Egypt? What do you think they would be thinking? And, and knowing the past and how God does all that he says he will, I think it gives us great hope. Because, because Matthew quotes a prophecy that was given 3,000 years before. It's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When he says, and he quotes in verse 14 there, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the prophet is recalling in Hosea 11.1 1, how God had saved the people from bondage in Egypt. The Exodus. And many times, again, we see God doing something in the present that will later occur in the future as well, and I think this is one of them. So I want to just really quickly, uh, kids, if you can help us with this, um, sh anybody know what the first plague was? Yeah, water was turned into blood, right? A symbol of life, water, was turned into a symbol of death. I mean, yuck. Could you imagine how smelly that would be? All the waterways turned to blood. What's the second one? Anybody know? Frogs, yes. <laughs> I'm 
I'm not going to do this the whole time, just so you know. They just come up out of the water. What's the third one? Yeah, no, not flies, gnats, or some kind of biting insect, some translations say. The fourth one is flies. Um, Everywhere, everywhere in everything of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Would be nice if, if it was that way, you know. Greenwald Farms has all the flies out there, but there's none right here in this building. That'd be great. That's the way it was for the Jews. Lives, what, what's number five? Yeah, li- livestock. Are you reading it? Oh, you're cheating. <laughs> livestock affla- affected by the plague. But only the Egyptians' livestock. I mean, if you were an Egyptian, wouldn't you start going, what is going on here? Well, is all this stuff okay? I mean, you talk about conspiracy theories. They had to be flying right now. What number six? What about number six? Boils. Ooh, what an unfortunate plague. Boils all over who? The Egyptians. Not the Israelites. And then after that plague, the, the uh, seventh plague is, you know, if, you, if you're covered in boils, you don't want to be touched, right? What's number seven? Hail. Would you like to be dodging hailstones covered in boils? Except for the land of Goshen. Oh, if that were, weren't just true, right? <laughs> so just, oh, I can't get hail, but not in Goshen County, the land of Goshen. I mean, it beat everything down. Number eight? Anybody not cheating? Locusts? There's only two left. Number nine? Darkness. For three days. No significance in that number. Three days it's dark. Yet, the Israelites have light. How God worked that one out. I suppose here it would be, you know, all of the Egyptians don't have electricity and all of the Jews did. I don't know how it would work in that day. And then, of course, number 10 was what? Death of the firstborn. Now, before that final plague came, what were the Israelites commanded to do? They were commanded to get an unblemished lamb, a find a perfect lamb, Bring it to your home for four days. You know, let the kids get to know it. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and then they were to sacrifice it. And then what were they to do? Dip the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house, right? I mean, it, it, this kind of seems like weird stuff. If you don't know the whole story. And if they did that, then they were to have their family in there together when God carried out that last plague, the angel of death would pass over their house and everyone in it would be safe. They were saved, weren't they? On that night, how? By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. And in all this, God is making it very clear that he was the mighty protector. 
protecting his people. So when we read about Joseph and Mary and Jesus being sent and then later called up out of Egypt, let's also let our minds go back to when Israel was in bondage and what God did to save them. It all fits. God's saying, look, what I'm going to do, look, this is sort of a microcosm of what that's kind of going to look like. Have these details in your mind, and then when it happens, you're going to go, oh, of course. A couple other real quick ones before I go to the third one. Um, Again, Ruth, Boaz, Bethlehem. The foreshadowing of where Jesus would be born is where? Bethlehem. Later on, um, when, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes on Lamb Selection Day, Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. When they select lambs, where are they raised? Where do they get them? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. I mean, God gave so many signposts on the road to salvation that this is how I'm going to do it. Yet so many people in that day missed it. May we not miss it today. May we not miss it today. God is our mighty God. And the third uh, detail uh, is that, that God's might inaugurates a new exodus. A new exodus. You see, Matthew was intentional in quoting from Hosea chapter 11. Isn't it that way for us? I mean, before Christ, and even after, sometimes we, we just we step back into it, and we step back into it, and we allow it to have control over our lives. But before Christ, we are in bondage to sin. We are chained. We know no other way. Those friends that you have who don't know Jesus Christ, they're just being who they are. They're just making those decisions because it's not based on, it's not based on truth or, or the love of Jesus Christ or, or having been forgiven. It's just based on themselves. That's how we all were. Maybe some of us to a greater d- degree or extreme than others, but bottom line, we have all been bonded, in bondage to sin. And because Jesus came, available to us today is this new exodus, this this new Passover. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, as Paul says in Romans, we will be saved. And and that's kind of like putting the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of our life. Sin is destructive and oppressive. We know. We know how it's destroyed and, and, and uh, uh, oppressed people because of our actions, and we ourselves have been destroyed and oppressed by others because of their sinful decisions and actions. But we must not forget that Jesus died for all. And that if you find yourself sitting here this morning and you know, well, I've never, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. You find yourself in bondage to sin. You find yourself making decisions that maybe later you go, why did I do that? Well, in some ways, why not? 
God has inaugurated a new exodus. Jesus has come. The angel told Joseph that he has come to seek and save the lost. Why not this morning? Why not just lay your life down before him right now and say, I hear you loud and clear right now. I believe. I believe. And, and don't you think that a God who is able to work things out in life throughout a 3,000-year span can work things out in your life? He is mighty. Don't think that a God who is able to make frogs come up out of the water and crazy amounts of gnats and flies and all that stuff that happened to a nation and not another nation in the same nation can't work in the circumstances that you find yourself in today. Because that's just a lie. He absolutely can. Where are you going to put your trust? I say put it in your mighty God. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And then I want to leave you with this one. John 3.17 and 18. Worship team, come on up here for our last song of the day. For God did not send his son fully 